So today is Easter, and we've been looking at the stories of Jesus' trial, death, and resurrection. And today we're going to be looking at the stories of Jesus' resurrection. And we've called this series The One because there's a, a moment in the resurrection stories where Jesus asks two disciples, we're not sure if it's the 12 disciples or some of the many other disciples that he had, he asks them about the things that had happened. And one of the things they tell him is that there was a teacher and a doer of mighty deeds, and we had hoped he was the one. And as I think about Easter, I think about those disciples that are like, we had hoped he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Because I think Easter is a call to like expose our hopes and the things that form our hopes. What is it that we actually are after? What is the thing that I actually want and what is forming my hopes and my dreams? Today we're going to be looking here at the stories in Luke chapter 24 of Jesus' resurrection and the conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. So go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, starting in verse 1, it says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women came, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. They, then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the, all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Let's pray. God, as we come here on Easter, and as we listen to your word, God, I pray that you would form our expectations, our hopes, and our dreams in our daily life by your resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have here in this first scene is kind of a, a continuation. Luke is a historian who is trying to lay out a detailed account in the book of Luke, and then he does it again later in the book of Acts, uh, for, for a friend of his. And he's trying to lay out, this is exactly what happened. And so previously, he said that the women saw the tomb. Jesus was buried without, um, without being embalmed, without being wrapped in spices. And so the women prepared some. And then the, the story picks up and says on Sunday, the first day of the week, they go back to that tomb. These women know where the tomb is. They've seen it. There is no mistake here. They take the spices that they'd prepared and they find that the stone was rolled away. This story is really like laying out detail after detail uh, of this story. Hey, I've, Peter, uh, Luke, I'm sorry, is, is laying out, I've actually talked to these women. These women had seen Jesus' body. They had seen Jesus dead. They had seen Jesus buried. They go back to that place, and then he begins laying out details about the angels whose clothes gleamed like lightning. Begins uh, talking about what like the women's fear and what the, what the angels say to them. Those angels... Say, remember how he told you? This is going to be an important detail here in Luke chapter 24. Remember what Jesus said? Remember what is written about Jesus? 
that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. So then they remembered his words. So, so the focus here is on the details and the women remembering Jesus' words. The women go and tell the other disciples. Peter runs, goes, and looks at the tomb and leaves wondering to himself what had happened. Maybe your translation might say marveling about what had happened. Then verse thir- verses 13 to 35 like lay out two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Verse 13 says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Here in this scene, this is uh, a, they're going to two disciples. One of them is named Cleopas. We don't know if the other one is a male or if it's his wife. There were there were disciples, there were followers of Jesus that were women, but they are going to a town about seven miles away, and Jesus comes alongside, but they don't recognize him, and so they get into this conversation where they begin saying, "Don't you know about all of the crazy things that have happened in Jerusalem?" over the last three days, exposing like, hey, these were our expectations. We wanted somebody to come who would redeem Israel. This this story is the disciples saying, this is what we had hoped for. And what we instead got was a dead teacher. And now this report that's hard for us to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so then, just like in the previous scene, the angels had pointed towards Jesus' words. Here, the the story says that Jesus takes the Scriptures and begins explaining how all of them points to Himself. They still don't recognize Jesus, but Jesus begins giving them a lesson in that all of the Scriptures are pointing to Him and to His death and to His resurrection. And so... Then they, they get to the place where they're going to spend the night and they, they 
ask Jesus to go ahead and stay with them, and he sits down and eats with them. And they recognize him as he breaks the bread and prays for it. For it. Then it says that they get up and they go back to the disciples. And there's this interesting detail here. It says that like the disciples tell these two that Peter had seen Jesus. The only other report that we have of that is actually in 1 Corinthians. So there are uh, appearances of Jesus. This just kind of brings out this detail. The disciples are like, he, Jesus appeared to Peter in the meantime. And so at this point, the 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 reports are getting stronger and they're getting stronger. Jesus, the angels told the women, the women told the disciples, Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to Peter. And then we get to the central scene here. Verses 36 to 49 is where Jesus appears to all the disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you. While I was still with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So here in this central scene... The, Jesus is again pointing the disciples to what has been written about him in the scriptures. He's saying, remember, I told you these things. You didn't understand it at the time, but this is what the scriptures have been pointing to from the very beginning. He, the, he gives the entire kind of breadth of scripture, the law of Moses and the prophets and the writings, the Psalms. In all of these things, these stories, these events, these prophecies, these commands are actually pointing to me. And then Jesus gives them a task and says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then Jesus, he gives them this task and then he gives them a promise and says, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Here he's pointing them to the, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and give you the power to do the task that I've given you. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is the, this is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And now you get to go and be perils, proclaimers of what God has done in Christ. And then you get the spirit as the power to do that. And the final scene, verses 50 to 53 lays out Jesus' ascension as Jesus goes to heaven. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Luke finishes his account. This is the story of, this is the story of Jesus. Laying it out detail after detail. And then he begins and points to say, Jesus has returned to heaven. This is how he returned. And the really interesting detail is that Jesus blessed them. 
and he left them, was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him. This is an unthinkable thing for, for a Jewish person to do, is to worship another person. Something has changed in this moment. As the disciples go from believing and hoping that Jesus is the Messiah, dejected, discouraged, hiding out, to now they are worshiping Jesus as God. Then Luke will later write an account of what the disciples do with that knowledge as they fulfill that task, going into all the world with the message of Jesus. But this story, this Easter story, finishing the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24, is, a, is actually a call to us to look to Jesus for resurrection for our expectations. It, we actually are called, as we begin to think through what our hopes and our dreams are in these days and in the coming days, what does the next month look like? What does the next five months? What does the next year? What does the next five years look like? The, the, the resurrection of Jesus is a call to form our expectations around that. And I want to show you two different ways that we are called to look to Jesus' resurrection for our expectations. First, we find in this story, this call, look to Jesus' resurrection for our expectations about God and about His promises. As we begin to go, hey, what, what is God like? What does God do with His promises? Our, this call is to form our expectations around that and not to just go, well, this is what I'm hoping for. This is what I'm working for. Jesus' resurrection is a call to form our, our expectations about the future, our hopes and our dreams about what are going to happen. Form those around the character of God and about, around His promises. You see, because here in Luke chapter 24, each one of these scenes lays out this call to look to the Scriptures, look to Jesus' words, and see that Jesus' death and resurrection are the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. That we, we can often take the Bible, split it in two, and go, well, there's the Old Testament that tells us commands and failures, maybe some examples of what it means to walk with God. And then we've got the New Testament that talks about Jesus and that talks about forgiveness and that talks about the church. And we begin to divide the Bible into two parts, a command part where we're just called to live on our own and do, our, do what we're supposed to do, be like Abraham, be like David, be like so-and-so, be like Job. And then the part that's like, oh, this is the forgiveness part. What, what happens in this, we see it in each one of the scenes. We see it as the angels point the women to Jesus' words, to the fulfillment of Scripture, as Jesus explains to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that all of the law and the prophets point to Jesus. They don't stand alone on their own as if this is how you can have a relationship with God and you don't need Jesus to do it. And then we see it when Jesus uh, talks to the disciples in the room and says that the law of the Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, each one of these things points to Jesus. And so there is this, this, this call for us to begin to look at the character of God and the promises of God and what it means to walk with God and say all of those things will not make sense until we look at Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection are, is the defining moment that it interprets and explains everything else. And so we can't look at the life of Abraham and go, oh, this is what it means to please God and to walk with God unless we actually look at the life of Abraham through the life of Jesus. We can't actually understand what it means to, uh, for Joseph to call us to faithfulness and to living as if God is with us unless we are actually looking at the life of Joseph through the life of Jesus. We don't understand David without the life of Jesus. We don't understand the book of Joel without Jesus. Each one of those things. We don't understand Psalms unless we look at Jesus. And so it can be very, very easy for us 
to become like Israel and like the disciples and end up having deficient expectations about the future. We have deficient expectations about what it means to walk with God in a relationship with God because it's so easy for us to separate Jesus from the rest of the Bible. And this, this call, this passage is a call to remake our understanding of what it means to walk with God, what it means to believe God, what it means to hear the promises of God. Remake all of those things around Jesus and Jesus' resurrection. We will not understand those things if we do not look at Jesus. So this, this passage calls us, look to Jesus' resurrection for our expectations about God, His character, and His promises. And so then this call here in Luke chapter 24 helps us begin to go, oh, we cannot understand Old, Old Testament promises like I will never leave you or forsake you if we don't look at Jesus. We, we can't understand the promise in the book of Jeremiah that says, I will give you a new heart and a new mind unless we look at this moment and say, this is the grounds for God giving me a new heart. We cannot understand the promise of God in Psalm 23, I will be your shepherd and you shall not want. Unless we look at Jesus' death and resurrection as the fulfillment of that and the guarantee that it's true, we cannot understand the promise of God to the people of Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people. Unless we look at Jesus and see that in Jesus, in His death and His resurrection, He makes us His own. And so the call is to go, God, can you help me? Can you help me reset my expectations about your character, about how you're relating to me, how you're keeping your promises to me around the resurrection? God, can you help me? Can you help me reform all of the, my hopes and dreams about who you are and what it's going to be like to walk with you? Help me remake that around the resurrection. Jesus, this Easter, don't let me just kind of skate through and still separate you from my hopes and dreams. But God, my hopes and dreams about your promises and about your character are based on Jesus and his resurrection. The second way that we are called to remake our expectations is to look to Jesus' resurrection for our expectation about the future. We're called to look to Jesus' resurrection to remake our expectations about the future. What we find when Jesus meets his disciples in the upper room in verses 36 to 49 is that Jesus who points to the fulfillment of Scripture, that, hey, this had to happen this way. I'm in control of this. I know exactly what I'm doing. It says, then he tells them the task, and he gives them a power. I mentioned this earlier. But Jesus gives them a task in this moment. So yes, here I am. I died, and I've been raised to new life. And he says, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus is giving them a task saying, you guys, your job will be to be a witness and to be a herald. One, some translations say proclaim. And so I think that that proclaiming, that heralding is a really, really good word for what this task that the people of God have. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the people of God now have the task to herald to the world Forgiveness of sins to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. We often don't use heralds. We don't use that word a whole lot anymore. That, that's, that the, the, the call to Christians is to be people that announce something. We, we often think about our job is to persuade or to, be, to convince or to, um, to manipulate, to, to convince somebody to go in a certain way. But there, here in this, Jesus' task is to, to his disciples, and then to you and I, is to proclaim it, the forgiveness of sins 
in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The, the task of Christians gets remade so that the future, our future lives are not just, well, just try and live it out and just try to, just try to hang on for dear life until you die and get to go to heaven. Oh, just do whatever you want. No, like the call to Christians is this task to with our whole lives to herald forgiveness of sins in his name. Like that, that becomes the task. But instead of just saying, disciples, here's your task. Go and do it. He, he then says, and I'm going to give you the power to do that. He says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. Jesus is not just saying, hey, I have a task for you. Go and tell the world. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. But I'm going to give you the power to go and do that. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit just like I promised so you're not going to be left alone. So Jesus' resurrection, this Jesus' resurrection account remakes our expectations about the future that we have a task to go into the world with and we have a power to do it in. You see, sometimes as Christians, we can actually make the task really, really narrow. We can just begin to make the gospel something really, really small. So that uh, the message of Christianity is, oh, your sins can be forgiven so that you can go to heaven. And so then it becomes this like really, really small gospel. That is absolutely true. Jesus is actually pointing them to the fact that we actually need our sins to be forgiven so that we can have a relationship with God. That is absolutely central. That is the basis for everything else. But you see, the, the, the call in the Bible... The call in all of this is to is that God is actually forming a people in relationship for himself, that his kingdom has come and is going to come one day in full. And so the task for Christians is to be heralds of that, heralds of that with our words, heralds of that with our lives. Instead of, hey, we're just going to hang on trying to be moral so that God will allow us to go to heaven. No, God has forgiven my sins, has given me a new identity in Christ, and has given me a power to be the kind of herald and be the kind of person fit for that kingdom. God is in the process of remaking my heart and my desires. God is in the process of remaking everything about me so that I look like Jesus and so that we live like Jesus and so that one day we get to enjoy our lives with Him forever. You see, sometimes I think we... Our gospel becomes rooted simply in this like small, narrow trial courtroom box. When in the Bible, the gospel is rooted in Eden, in a place where Adam and Eve rebelled against God and said, we do not want you as our king. We're going to live our own way. We're going to do our own thing. And so right there in Genesis chapter 3, the kingdom, Eden, Relationship with God is broken. And the rest of the story of the Bible is God who is, who has promised to one day judge his enemies, judge all people who have rejected him. The story of the Bible is God coming to rescue those rebels. God, the story of the Bible is God not leaving us on our own, but coming and living the life that we should live, dying the death that we should die, and rising to new life as we see in this passage, so that we can be restored to relationship with God through repentance for the forgiveness of our sins. And so then that relationship is not just this courtroom, okay, God has acquitted me. It is back into the, a better relationship than Adam and Eve could have ever dreamed of where we are called sons and daughters of the King. We are brought as in as co-heirs with Christ who will one day rule with Him forever. 
And so the task for Christians rooted in Luke chapter 24 is to become heralds of that kind of kingdom, to become heralds of the fact that those who repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins can be made co-heirs with Jesus with the promise that one day we will rule and reign with Him forever. And so, will, will you join me in praying, God, can you help me proclaim and herald this? Maybe you today need to say, I, I have never repented of my sins and trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of my sins. This doesn't, this doesn't apply to me because I've never done that. This can be the day for that. This Easter Sunday can be the day for that. The rest of us begin to pray, God, help us to proclaim and to herald with our tongues and with our lives this, this coming kingdom rooted in Easter Sunday. If I'm honest, though, most of the time, my expectations are not rooted in Jesus' resurrection. Most of the time, my expectations about the character of God are rooted more in just what I want God to do for me. More, most of the time, my expectations about God and His promises is rooted more in this is what I want and what I think God keeping His promises to me looks like. Most of the time, my expectations about the future are formed more by my desires of what I want the future to look like than Jesus' resurrection. And so where is the good news for you and for me who come to Easter Sunday with our own hopes and dreams and expectations and most of the time Easter Sunday is really not the forming factor in that? Where, where is the good news for those of us that are judged by Easter Sunday? We trust in Christ. We repent of our sins. We're forgiven of our sins. But we're saying, God, I do not hope in you. I do not let your resurrection be the thing that forms my expectations. What we find on Easter Sunday is that Jesus died even for those sins. Jesus is the one who perfectly looked to his Father for joy. Jesus is the one who perfectly looked to his Father expecting a good future. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is the one that Hebrews says endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him. Jesus is the one whose expectations about God's character and his promises were perfect, and he died in our place. And so when Jesus is brought to life, then he gives me his record, and he gives me his identity, and he gives me his power. And so that this, so that Easter Sunday is not just a judgment of, whoa, why can't you just be a better Christian? Why can't you just hope more? No, Jesus, I'm sorry, Easter is God's great declaration that Jesus died completely for my sin. Jesus is the one who gives me a perfect record. And Easter Sunday and every Sunday after it is a reminder I have Jesus' record. Easter Sunday is a reminder that I have Jesus' identity, not my own. I have been bought and paid for. Easter Sunday, is a reminder that God gives me the power to change from the inside out. All of the scriptures point me to that moment as, as the, the new heart and the new mind that God has put inside me so that I can live with his record, his identity, and his power. So what changes this Easter Sunday for us? What changes this Easter Sunday if we look to Jesus' resurrection for our expectations, to form our expectations about God and His promises and about the future. What changes? I think when we begin to go to Jesus' resurrection to form our expectations, we become a different kind of people with a different kind of hope. We become the kind of people when trouble strikes, 
We know that our hope is not that this trouble will end. Our hope is that God is bringing His kingdom to bear and that no trouble in our lives is going to threaten that. I think we become a different kind of people when the resurrection forms our hopes about our relationships, about our jobs, about our careers, about our children. We become a different kind of people when our hopes for our children are resurrection hopes, not worldly hopes. Our our expectations about the world become different when we look at the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this Easter we would remake our expectations around your gospel, around your good news that you died in our place and have been raised to life as God's great yes. God, help form my expectations, my hopes and dreams, my beliefs about you and your character. Form that here at Easter around the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.